My spirit keeps on, living down by the river. Damn shame that it's gone, living down by the river. But there's no turning round. Rivers drowned, rivers drowned, rivers drowned, rivers drowned. We're winding our way today along two kinds of river. A real river and its environment and people, and an imagined river. We'll spend a while splashing round on the Daly River in the Northern Territory. Rich and full-flowing, for over a century it's been a kind of fantasy river for the visionaries of the South. But in the distance, the ghosts of the Southern Rivers are heard. Dammed and sucked dry from decades of irrigation, the waterholes left are often dead or dying. We're also on a riverine journey of the imagination, of memory and sometimes of grieving. These come from your stories, uploaded to the ABC's Pool website for the Rivers Project. And so you too will be in the tinny in this program, reminding us of other, less healthy waterways. A piece we'll come back to during the program is Frog Story, from Liz and John Yelland. It is a moon-washed night in October 2003. I'm standing at the edge of a reed-fringed lagoon on the southwest corner of Lake Alexandrina, one of twin freshwater lakes at the very end of the River Murray, just before it enters the Coorong and the sea. It is magically calm. The lake is as smooth as polished platinum. Frog song saturates the air, spreading out for miles across the surrounding flats. I seem to be suspended in a space outside time, only myself awake in a whole world asleep. I have the feeling I'm standing in the midst of something eternal. Great-grandfather John Henry, milking by hurricane lantern in the old stone dairy on the rise, would have heard these same frog songs. The Nurunjeri would have heard them too, for 6,000 years before that. The Daly River is a much-loved waterway of the Northern Territory. Flowing even through the dry months, it's fed by three underground aquifers, as well as 18 tributaries. The Catherine, the Douglas, the King, the Ferguson, the Cullen and the smaller creeks like Green Ant Creek and Flying Fox Creek. It's also full of predators like the bull shark, the sawfish, and of course the barramundi, which is the basis of an economically significant amateur fishing industry. The daily has been eyed off by southerners since the 1870s as a potential food bowl for the nation, but there's been little scientific knowledge of it until just a few years ago, when the Tropical Rivers and Coastal Knowledge, or TRAC project, brought together scientists from all over the country to study the river's ecology and its worth. Now TRAC's research is feeding into decisions made by the Daly River Management Committee, which is advising government on land clearing restrictions and water licensing, legislation about which will be made in early 2011. Right now, the Daly River is at a critical point in its conservation and its development. 
Alright, so what's that? This is a big silvery fish called the bony brim, one of Australia's most common fish. And I'll just measure his length. So we him on the measuring board. And he's 200 metres. This one is called an archer fish. These guys swim around at the water surface and they eat a lot of terrestrial insects that fall in the water. And they can also spurt a little jet of water like a water pistol and shoot insects out of the, you know, that are sitting in the trees. A lovely little fish. So that's a Toxodes Atarius juvenile. 69 mils. This one is called a mouth almighty and he's got a very big mouth. You can see how big his mouth is relative to his body. Oh, and that's yeah. because they brood their eggs in, in the mouth. It's huge. It's like half his body yeah. size. And so they'll, they'll keep like 50 to 100 eggs in their mouth. And even when they hatch the little larvae, they'll, they'll protect them in their mouth. Could make it so we call it a, for eating. That's right. So we call it a mouth almighty. <laughs> even though he's really quite tiny. Yes. Uh, 70 mils G. Aprion. There's an apparent abundance of water during flood. So why not dam the daily or siphon off the water before it flows wasted out to sea? But unlike the waters of the Murray-Darling, dammed and irrigated from and fought over to the river's peril, there is agreement from environmentalists and farmers that their river, the daily, won't be travelling the same route. And it's never, ever going to be this great food bowl of the nation. That will never happen. But the devil is in the detail, still being defined, and so let's meander along the Daly's banks to discover the cultural, social, scientific and political tributaries of the river, and how contemporary policy approaches might avert another Australian riverine disaster. Here's Stuart Blanche, coordinator of the Environment Centre Northern Territory. It's one of the best rivers left in Australia. It's one of the uh, best fishing rivers in Australia. And in fact, many barramundi fishermen rate it as the best barramundi fishing river in the whole country. It's a very long river. It stretches a couple hundred or more kilometres right to the headwaters up in Arnhem Land. And it flows every day of the year, all year round. Uh, which marks it apart from most rivers in the uh, north of Australia, which run a bankfall and at flood capacity during the wet season, but then dry up by about June or July because it doesn't rain. The Daly River, however, has very large underground aquifers which fill up with amazingly clear water during the wet season and then slowly release it like a sponge during the dry season. And that's why it's a great magnet for wildlife. It's a great habitat for many threatened species like the pig-nosed turtle, uh, the freshwater sawfish, barramundi, many species of water bird, which flock there from all around the north during the dry season. It's also a great, great magnet for fishermen, campers. And one such fisherman is Chris Makepeace. He's the CEO of the Amateur Fishermen's Association of the Northern Territory and he runs a strong argument for environmental protection, if only for one reason. The Amateur Fishermen's Association, AFANT as we're known in the Northern Territory, I mean we're really concerned about two things, which is fish and fishes. And our sort of approach to these things is yes, we're happy to see development and we're not particularly concerned at the amount of development. What we're concerned is that that development is not going to impact on fish and therefore the people who fish for them. 
Uh, and it's only with these processes where we take conservative approaches to water allocation and where we're, we're absolutely clear that if there are changes in seasonal circumstances, that they can be taken into account. So the environmental flows, or the fish flows as we like to call them in the river, um, will be maintained at levels where we won't see adverse impacts on the fish. Tell me a little bit about the barramundi. Not necessarily from a social point of view, but from the fish point of view. It's got quite interesting biology. I mean, the fish move up and down the rivers to spawn. They um, spawn in freshwater. They can't spawn unless they're able to go to the salt water, though, and so they need the movement between fresh and salt water just simply in order to be able to reproduce. They need that floodplain or certainly major food sources because their initial growth is really quite rapid growth. A, a one-year-old barramundi is 40, 50 centimetres long, so, so that's quite rapid growth, so they need uh, ready uh, food sources for that. The other thing about barramundi that's interesting, and again, not unique, but barramundi are born males, so they're, all the fish are males until they reach a certain size, and that size is a bit dependent on conditions and food sources and all that sort of thing. But you can be pretty sure that if you've found an 85 centimetre barramundi, you're talking to a female barramundi and not a male, for instance. But really, without that movement between salt and fresh, there are no barramundi. So the prospect of, for instance, damming the lower parts of rivers becomes a major problem in terms of maintaining barramundi populations. Given there, there wasn't any information on the freshwater fishes of the Dalis, uh, everything is actually quite new for us and a lot of it's uh, new from a science perspective. So there have been lots of things that we've seen uh, that we were unaware of before. There's different interactions between species, uh, certainly in this river and uh, compared to many of the other ones I've worked in, uh, the issue of fish predation on, uh, is really important as a structuring agent. So, and there are many, many fish predators in this river from bull sharks to barramundi, whip rays and sawfish and so on. So fish predation is a really important factor for maintaining biodiversity and so that you need to maintain that. So things like barramundi, you must maintain uh, populations of barramundi in the river in order to maintain other species as well. And things like bull shark, really important. And, and the key thing for those species is they move between freshwater and estuaries and so the maintenance of, of the passageway basically for them to move from those areas and between them is critical. So if, if there were reductions in, in water say in the late dry season and that would increase the difficulty for some of these species to move across barriers, um, some of the the big riffles and so on, then that would start to have a cumulative effect on maintenance of biodiversity here. I'll get this catfish. <laughs> 70 mils? Uh, no, I haven't measured it. <laughs> okay, so that's an Arius burnii, 170. Yep. That's so cool. Make him do it again. His eyes spin around. They're a beautiful little fish, aren't they? They are gorgeous. What do you like about it? Oh, beautiful, silvery, shiny fins, almost like a shark. Yes. Dark, dark black fins. Very spiky, though. They've got three very sharp spines. Their dorsal and their pectoral spines. So you're picking them up yeah. quite yeah, carefully. So there's a way to pick them up. <laughs> you slide your hand up behind their pectoral and dorsal spine there. They have these whiskers for grubbing along on the bottom. Quite rubbery. Finding food, yeah, long, rubbery. So the fish is like 17 centimetres long and these whiskers are like 6 or 7 centimetres long. We'll put him back in the water, eh? 
fish ecologists Brad Pusey and Mark Kennard, together with a noisy catfish in the tinny. We're on and in a narrow, rushing, clear-water tributary of the Daly, the Catherine River. These track scientists have been studying the fish of the river system for the past five years, and their reports will come out soon. Wow, that's your haul. What do you think? Was it much for the...? We caught a lot of fish today, yep. more than we probably ever have. It was good. So with our sampling, we'll do five-minute sample and then catch a bucket full of fish and take them to the bank like we are now and measure them and, and put them back in the water. And then we'll go to a different place and do another five-minute sampling. And we do that ten times in this, this site. When you say five-minute sampling, what do you mean by that? So we, we put our rubber gloves on, we get our nets ready, and then Quentin turns the electrofisher on, and we can put a current into the water up to like 500, 1,000 volts into the water. And it's a good sampling device because it's less destructive in terms of how you affect the fish than other sampling methods. So it doesn't damage the fish like netting can. So when the current's on in the water, the fish, any fish that's in the field, which is about two to three metres in front of the boat, perhaps a bit more, depending on how conductive the water is, so any fish in that field will get temporarily stunned. They'll turn side up and we can see them, the silver flash in the water. So we grab them with our nets and put them in this live well here, this big tank with water in it. And they'll, you'll see they'll come too after, you know, depending on the species, to anywhere between 10 and 30 seconds, they'll start swimming around again. And they're quite healthy. My spirit keeps on, living down by the river. Damn shame that it's gone, living down by the river. But there's no turning round. Rivers drowned. Rivers drowned. There's a feeling deep in the human soul as the spoon scrapes down to the bottom of the bowl. All I need is the love of my family and the river by the roots of the family tree. Like I, the first time I come to the daily, I just realised it was a beautiful place, beautiful river. And almost immediately I just said, I've got to find a block of land or do something. Like even people who come here, you know, there's so many people who come to the daily who really just love the river, whether they catch fish or not. And it's the sort of river that you do come and you sort of fall for the river. You know, you, you love the river and, and the way it is and the environment. And I think you can easily fall in love with this river, that's for sure. Because I've been here a long time, and I can see the river is getting busier and busier and it's getting to a place, a stage where it's probably a bit like Kakatu when they were really pushing that and all these visitors were gone and then they said, oh, hang on, we're getting too many people here. And I feel that it's going to be the same situation here where we've got to sort of step back and see because it's, it used to be a nice place to fish and you'd go out there and you'd be one or two boats, but you go there and there's boats everywhere and all this sort of stuff, yeah, you know? Yeah. One time they used to travel this river by canoe, canoe okay? Canoe, But now big boats, eh, Biddy? Yeah, big mm. boat, we got them in this country. Canoe. Mm. Canoe was better. Better, yeah, no, not, better. not better, but uh, could, no road. No people coming like we, now we've seen it, that traffic coming. And me, I never see the car before. No. When you grew up, people used the river as the road. Yeah, canoe. There was a dirt track, but it was sort of, 
you were here for the dry season and then you were stuck in here for the wet season if you didn't get out, you know, get you out, just couldn't be. travel the road. Mm. Um, but Biddy and her family have seen huge changes in their life, so they've gone from that, you know, um, if you want to go somewhere, you walk, if it's on land or, or you know, or you go in a canoe, canoe yeah. to now, you know, the, these massive big boats that come, mm. you know, bitumized road, <laughs> road trains, you know, the yeah. traffic, all, all that sort of stuff, you know, it, it's been a massive change in, 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 a, in a lifetime. Mm. Where the river flat soil slips down to the water, the young man walks with his dark-eyed daughter. He kicks off his boots and steps into the stream where the ripples hark back to a distant dream. But a voice on the news says the time has come for the rat-a-tat-tat of the progress drum. A brown-eyed girl in a housing estate, she turns on the tap to her valley's fate. My spirit keeps on living down by the river. Damn shame that it's gone living down by the river. But there's no turning round. River's drowned, river's drowned. Rivers drowned, rivers drowned, rivers drowned, rivers drowned. The Tilligra Song, Ken Rubley. The Daly River in the dry is elegant and beautiful, flowing well contained within its banks. Even so, this is a lush environment the water providing sustenance for the riparian zone, the native bush along the riverbank, as well as less welcome weed invaders that are almost impossible to control. While this is still a relatively pristine environment, in the past few years, the weeds have arrived. They're everywhere, not just along the river, but in the catchment where the raging floods engulf the landscape and drag weed seed all over the country. There are questions about the effects of land clearing and deliberately introduced species that are not yet easily answered. Okay, so my name's Rob Lindsay. My role on the daily is uh, the coordinator of the Mullet Mullet Land Management Group. Mullet Mullet being the traditional owners for this part of the river, and I'm married to one of them, my, my wife Biddy. Um, Biddy, I'm born and bred in this country, in the bush, and I'd seen this country change and this river where we're sitting there that was a good one before but not like this one. So this this dirt clearing is yeah it's all humbug. Too much humbug. Yeah. 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 Because of the um, river changed a lot and um, this river was like all a tree, you know, small tree, but it's gone away. Earth work, moving things, and the, when the water comes, it changes too, you know. And uh, before, natural river, clean, healthy tree, banks and all that, at least my view, new. New one. These are the weeds. The weeds, yes. It's a beautiful looking river, but it's really, really changed in the last 10 years, it really has. So mm. what in the last 10 years has changed upstream? <laughs> it's a combination of things. I mean, certainly you, you would think, or 
you know, your automatic thing would be land clearing, but I think it's only part of it. Well, certainly it, it, it's had some effect. This Nagora burr, there's sort of anecdotal evidence that this is having a lot to do with it, um, and this Nagora burr goes all the way back up to, to Catherine. It's a broadleaf thing that, that just crowds out everything. You can, you can see underneath this Nagora burr, there's a little bit of native cooch grass, but that just used to be thick that used to hold the banks and this Nagora burr is just sort of the way it grows it crowds out everything underneath and, and it's got a very very shallow root and it's easy to pull out so whenever the wet season comes it's very easy for banks to be undermined and so that falls into the river which then of course raises the river bed which makes the river wider and shallower. This sandbar has been here for a long time but not like this um, and there's photos people. This one got uh, mixed with dirt. We always used to think that um, it was just the clearing, but we've sort of learnt through our involvement with the track people and, and, and other things that um, there's a lot of sediment that comes down with, with the heavier rains that we've been having, and so it's not hard to put your finger on one thing and say that's what's doing it, but there, there, there are a lot of things, but it just, in my own mind, it's sort of in the last 10 years since the 98 flood, it's really, really, really changed. And how long have you been here? Uh, nearly 30 years. Uh, my name is Joy Madison. I'm the coordinator for uh, Wongamite Land Management Group and I'm in my sixth year here. So I also support the ranger group, the TOs, but also the other landholders in the Wooliana area. Joy Madison and I drive down the Wooliana Road. And here, all along the bank, the trees are smothered in thick green weeds. The old photos show huge old trees overhanging the river. This new, false bright greenery is like an alien invasion. There's a plentiful Nagura burr, Mimosa pigra, Calipo and Centro vines, Poinciana's, plum and African mahogany trees, which are starting to run feral from plantations. So what they've done with the pastoral industry in the north is they've introduced a lot of exotic grasses. And one of them, um, in more recent years, is one that's called gamba grass. The cattle like it when it's quite small. Nobody looked to see what would happen with this particular species um, outside of grazing areas. Well, what's happened is it's gone absolutely berserk. It loves everything that's not water. So it'll take over all these beautiful hills around here, all the beautiful savannas all around your floodplains, you name it, it will grow. And the cattle aren't feeding on that. You've probably heard lots of stories about the fuel load of gamba grass. It becomes a, just a monoculture throughout all your savanna woodland hills area. When it dries off, it's usually quite hot by then. Um, all your native grasses have, have dried and they've been burnt and then you're left with gamba. The fuel load is phenomenal. So when you get a, a fire through there, it literally kills then all your understory. So all those little shrubs and things that normally come back after a fire through the woodland here. So that's a pasture grass. The NT government only recently declared it as a noxious weed. But the pastoral industry took no responsibility for that grass and it now is affecting all of these other lands. But scientists were screaming out a number of years ago about the potential threat of this pasture species.
It is a hot summer afternoon in March 2007. Where, on that frog night in 2003, there had been a metre of water, I am now walking across expanses of bare sand. My feet crunch on the shells of dead freshwater mussels, where once had been the plop of fish, the lap and rustle of freshwater reeds. Now there is only the sound of the wind. Unencumbered, it riffles the sand grains into ripples, sifts them into micro-dunes across a mini Sahara. Those frogs, back in 2003, could not have known their water would disappear. They sang in glorious triumph, revelling in frog love on a spring night, not a cloud on their frog horizons. We people didn't know either. We couldn't have known, back in 2003, that the familiar sights and sounds which we had absorbed over a lifetime, and which had become part of that inner core which gives us our strength, our resources and resilience, would change before our very eyes. We felt a gnawing form of homesickness. Only we hadn't left home. Home had left us. Absolutely, we've, we've seen change in the river. The, in the first couple of years, there was a lot of freshwater crocodile die-off from cane toads, which seems to have stabilised. Cane toads are an introduced toad. They've hopped their way over from Queensland. They're quite destructive. Just about anything that eats it will die. So they, I think they arrived in 2004, 2005 in the catchment. And just talking to the indigenous owners of the, this area, they, they had noticed a, a die-off of snakes and lizards, like the water monitors, things like that. And that was so rapid. We certainly saw lots of dead freshwater crocodiles when we first started it. We don't see them anymore and uh, we're seeing younger crocodiles around so it seems to have stabilised to an extent. But the other thing that we've seen, probably the most marked thing, is the growth of weeds over the, the five year period that we've been here and that when we first started uh, there wasn't an awful lot of weeds growing along the riverbank. There has been a major flood in that period of time and that has opened up a lot of space, a lot of sunlight and so on. So that's facilitated weed growth but uh, along the riverbanks there are a lot more weeds now than when we first started and that's, I think that's a shame because it was before that it was quite outstanding in not having weeds and weeds in riparian zones are a key threat. Well, riparian zones are the, uh, the area of uh, water-dependent vegetation that grows alongside rivers. And in the case of the northern Australia, they're typically very, very narrow zones. You can get out of the riverbank and maybe 30, 40, 50 metres away, you're into dry savanna country. They're key environments for supplying uh, material to the river in terms of wood and leaf material, uh, organic material. They're also key for habitats for birds, many, many species of birds. You get many more species of birds in riparian zones than you do get in, in adjacent savanna. Um, they're corridors for the movement of, of lots of uh, particular animals. They provide shade and nutrient interception for the river itself, so they're a key environment. Um, weeds get into them, uh, they make them more fire prone, so the fire goes through and they're likely more damaged. They compete for resources, so you get it's more difficult for recruitment of riparian plants to actually grow up through that weed barrier and, and establish. So in the long term you have, you have a reduction in the vigour of riparian zones. Where are the weeds coming from? They're coming in because of the movement of vehicles, boats, just human transfer. 
Some say that the river is barely a trickle at times and cannot be taken seriously. Others will say each story is as vast as the sky above. Who are we, each one of us as a grain of sand on the riverbank, to stand against the waters of time and not learn from these mysteries of life? Father Sergei Shetrov. You're with 360 Documentaries on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we're on the Daly River in the Northern Territory. Despite the toads and the weeds, the Daly remains a unique environment, not least because there's not a single feral fish in its waters. And back at the Catherine River, at Galloping Jacks, there's not a weed to be seen. Peter Kine is sifting through the mud for bugs and algae. My name is Peter Kine, I'm at Charles Darwin University at a research hub called the Tropical Rivers and Coastal Knowledge Hub, and it's a, a collection of researchers that focus on river uh, ecology um, across northern Australia. And here on the, um, the Catherine River, we're taking some samples for a food web study. So we're collecting material from the river to look at the food web structure and how it changes across the seasons and, and basically how the food web's operating within the river system and what's the importance of the different inputs from the river, from estuaries and from terrestrial food sources. So at the moment I'm just starting off, if we think of you know, classic food webs as you know, the producers or the, the sources at the bottom, so we think of algae and then go up the food chain you know, to small invertebrates and larger invertebrates to small fish, big fish, you know, birds, crocodiles, sharks, those sorts of things. At the top of the food webs, basically what we're trying to do here is collect representatives of all of those different levels of the, of the food web. Um, and so what I'm doing now is collecting, taking some rocks from the, from the river and scrubbing them with a brush that gets the algae off uh, into some water, into a bucket of water. Uh, that algae then lets settle out and then I can pump that sample through some filter paper and that'll give me a hopefully a nice green sample of algae which is something then we can analyze for levels of isotopes. So basically what I want to do is get representatives for the whole food web from each site and so I'll start with the algae here and then I'll be looking for some invertebrate samples, so small benthic bugs that live uh, in these areas. And then the guys who are out on the boat at the moment will be collecting some fish samples. And basically I get all these samples and take them back to the laboratory and they get analysed for their ratios of nitrogen and carbon, so two uh, stable isotopes. And the ratios of these chemicals, these isotopes, vary depending on where you are in the system. So basically it can tell us a couple of things. It can tell us where the sources come from. So if it's a source here in the river, like the algae, or if in fact the fish that are present here may have been feeding somewhere else, like in the estuary or in more marine environments and moved up into the river. And basically by looking at those chemicals, we can see who eats who, so how that food web works. And of course, the, the point of this is in understanding a food web, we can understand how you need to manage the river to keep that food web intact. Glassed water you could draw your life on sucks lays into engine noises. Glissading bay with spray pattern trails in knitted directions. 
raw sun, red rashed, halos day's edge. Heat nudges moisture from skin so early, the day will be a swill. These days are cut like a pack of cards, variable but similar. Each random face a different throat of dawn exposure. Bradley's Beach, Hawkesbury River. Susan Adams. As I understand it, there actually hasn't been a lot of research done into the tropical rivers. That's right, yeah. Um, How can that be? It's quite amazing. I think it's just a part of being somewhere so remote and away from, I guess, the bulk of the Australian population. And, you know, the North's opening up more now and, and the, the need for this research is pretty strong at the moment, given that development pressures or sort of constant pressure on the environment. And, and often the, the talk about large-scale development of the North for agriculture or, or water resources and you know, the pressure on water in, in Australia as a whole and in sort of the southern states means that the focus is often put on the North to fill that role of providing water or developing the great food bowl of the North. So what I guess part of what we're trying to do here is get some of that baseline information about the systems and providing the science for management. If we do something to the river, what's the consequences? So we avoid what happened to the Murray Darling because we really don't want to see that happen to the daily. There's a question of parts of the river being loved to death. When the Bitumen Road, which leads down to the community of Daly River Crossing, went in around 2002, access to the river from Darwin became quicker and easier. At the same time, boats are getting bigger and fishing equipment more sophisticated, says Rob Lindsay and CLP candidate Gary Higgins, who runs the mango farm at Daly River Crossing. The Daly's sort of, not, not at a crossroad now, now but the Daly's at an important phase of, of, of its life. Um, you know, for the 70s, the 80s, the early part of the 90s, um, it, it was okay, you know. And the, the boats that you see with the grey nomads, the 12-foot aluminium dinghies you can put on the roof rack, that was your norm. And, and the river could handle that. But now, you know, um, progress sort of changes everything and we've got Bitumen Road all the way here now, which is really nice, and we've got mains power. And so people can get finance, you know, from the boating places and you can get the big boats now. And, and so a 12-foot aluminium dinghy with a 15-horse motor is, is not your norm anymore. Your 60-horse and 150-horse motor is, is, is your standard sort of barramundi rig. And, and there's just so many people and, and uh, everybody, not just the traditional owners, but all the people who live at the daily are really starting to worry about mm. how many people are here, the size of the boats, the speeds they go on the river, all that sort of stuff. And because it's a free-for-all, um, it, it's happening. Since they've put the Bitumen Road in and they put in a, you know, a good boat ramp, you get a lot, of, a lot of people just drive down from Darwin for the weekend. So they'll drive down and they're staying on, on the boats. I mean, they're entitled to do that, the same as caravan has come into here and stuff. But if you look at the impact on the river, and I think that's what Biddy and everyone's concern is as well, they're actually fishing for, for longer periods. So they're fishing 24 hours a day. So the, 
you know, at the moment, people fish the tides and they fish the tides during the day. But if you're camped on a boat, if the tide's in the middle of the night, that's it, they'll fish in the middle of the night, sleep during the day and so forth. So, so you've got the equivalent of a caravan park actually on the river as well. Isn't there a limit on the amount of fish you can take? Yeah, there is. So you're only allowed to have five in possession. Most of the people down here want to see a reduction in the number of fish from five, say, down to three. By decreasing it to three, you have a lot of other impacts, and that is that you could, in actual fact, cut down on, on the, the number of people that prefer to come to the daily. So they prefer to come to the daily be, because they can have more fish, right? That's an obvious reason. The other thing then is that there's a whole issue with live bait. I won't go into whether I agree or disagree with it, but if you cut back on the number of fish that people are allowed, you'll naturally cut back on on the number of traps that are in the river and the impact on your, your cherubin stocks and so forth. So by controlling one thing, you could actually control a whole stack of other, other issues, um, which of course then you've got less people, so then there's less rubbish and all of that, and on you go from there. River experiences. Nine years living adjacent to the river, driving past it, driving over it, eating from it, swimming, watching. The light at dawn and dusk, reflections, upside down cattle egrets that bridge in spectacular cane fires, and the floating black rain. The sounds, day and night, the splash of mullet jumping, that weird squeaking honking of swamp hens, the whooshing of wings and screech of flying foxes vying for position and fruit atop the riparian, the idling of boat engines in the night as the locals check their crab pots, drenchings across the catchments and the effects of so much water moving across the land, watching the river rise and rise and rise, brown and boiling, with dead trees, dead cattle, full of sediment. Everyone preparing for flood, the rain finally stopping and dragging the dog from the water. It always takes time for the river to clear, but this time it went from earthy brown to black, like the darkest tannin-stained water you could ever see. Black and blacker. Dead fish left tangled in the brush as the water subsided. I thought the river was dead. And when the noise and distractions of each day ceased, the stench of death prevailed. And in the quiet times, in the early morning as eyes open, a stench deeper than dead fish, beyond description. And as the tide pushed and pulled the dead water, the stench eventually waned and recovery seemed possible. A recovery interrupted by a repeat performance. Like we had all missed the point and so had to go through it again. Another drenching. Another flush of death in the river. But a recovery nonetheless. River life and death and life. Adam Faulkner. At certain points along the daily, the banks are steep and collapsing. The river itself is wide and shallow. There are sandbanks where crocodiles bask in the winter sun. 
The widening and shallowing of the daily is raised by nearly all the river dwellers as cause for concern, and land clearing is blamed for this. While a scientific study shows this appears to be a natural part of a dynamic system with yearly massive water influxes, some question why the river mouth, 90 kilometres downstream, is silting up. Most farmers around the Douglas Daly region are doing what they can to prevent soil erosion. Laws prevent land clearing within a kilometre of the river's bed. High rotation cell grazing reduces the impact on paddocks and biodiversity, and no-till planting keeps the soil in the paddock and out of the river. Adaptive management is a catch cry here, but environmentalists and farmers are clear there is not much room to move. I wonder if that's in fact the issue on the Daly River generally, that things have to be kept small, because as soon as you get big, what happens? Given that basically, and I mean, there's sort of a lack of understanding of not just the Daly, but the whole of the top end of the Northern Territory, because we have wet seasons, we have, you know, huge amounts of rainfall, people seem to think we live in this really wet environment. In fact, we live in a desert. It's just that for three months of the year, it's very wet. But for the rest of the year, we have no rain. Uh, and so the situation with crops like cotton is that they would have required a lot of water. Now, since then, we've learned that there is not that much land in the daily that would really lend itself to that sort of approach anyway. So cotton was never really going to be a major uh, prospect for us. But at the time, we had, to, uh, we had to be concerned about it. And we have to be equally concerned whenever somebody else rides into town on a particular train that's going to, um, you know, th th we've had all sorts of things. We're going to grow canaf um, as a fuel crop. We're going to grow soybeans in order to feed a biodiesel plant. You know, we get all sorts of things like that, which while we don't have any particular concern with the crops per se, it's the scale of the operations that really are the problem. It is now March 2010. I'm standing at the lake's edge, almost two kilometres from the old shore of our farm. If the lake could be miraculously restored to fullness, the water would be a foot over my head. Calls of land birds have replaced those of the water. But mostly there is silence. No comforting calls of cattle in the distance. The paddocks are empty now. The water which could bring life is too salty and too far out. The spirits of the community, the very air itself, are permeated by an all-pervading despair. We do not support the Territory Government's proposal where it is looking to have a, at least a theoretical cap on the amount of the catchment that can be cleared at 20%. Currently we have a bit over 5% cleared. They say that uh, in their, their vegetation modelling based on computer assessments, they think that could lift up to perhaps 20%, at least uh, on paper, although it may not get much uh, above 10%. We still think that's way too high. There is probably 100,000 hectares of land that was cleared in the 70s and 80s in the Daly River system uh, that has regrown because it should never have been cleared. We have to learn the lessons from history that you don't overclear a good quality catchment like the Daly and then let it lie fallow and, and go to weeds and feral animals. But it's not just an environment versus agriculture debate. 
there are some fairly strong tensions in the daily uh, between farmers uh, and pastoralists who've been there for a long period of time and those who are increasingly coming up here from down south because they're running out of good quality water and land in the Murray-Darling or southwest WA or southeast Queensland. And there are many tales of very keen, bushy-tailed, visionary farmers and cattlemen moving into the daily and not making a quid and having to sell their property in end to clear debts. What is it about this apparent abundance which then doesn't yield for something like peanuts or, I imagine, cotton or rice? Well, there's not as much water available underneath caps established underneath the National Water Initiative. There's not as much good quality land. Often our soils up here are very low in nutrients. They're highly weathered. Uh, You have to add a lot of expensive inorganic fertilisers or grow uh, natural fertiliser crops. That all costs money. It's very expensive to do business up here for a whole range of reasons. It's a long way from manufacturers who provide, whether it's the diesel, whether it's the irrigation piping, the fencing, the services for the pastoral industry, it's not cheap to do business and it also costs a lot if you're trying to get your produce, whether it's watermelons, cattle or mahogany trees or peanuts into markets, whether it's down south or overseas. There's no wellspring in the mountains, no sacred source for the gigalita dream. But it's out there flowing, heading downstream, cresting watersheds, swelling on the draftsman's clean page, pulsing on the website screen, floating on the market. The gigalita dream. Brian Watchow. You know, there's increasing pressure on the water resources in the Daly River catchment for a whole range of uses, you know, for irrigation and for human consumption in the towns in the catchment. But one of the problems was that we know so little about the ecological uh, requirements of the fish and other things that live in the river. How much water do they need? So trying to avoid some of the mistakes perhaps that have been made down south in southern Australia where there's been a lot of water taken out of the river and that's had a lot of ecological impacts. We thought it was a good opportunity to get into the daily before some of those you know, major stresses to the catchment have, have actually happened. When we first designed this project, it was specifically asking the question, what will be, what is the potential impacts of increased water extraction from the catchment, particularly through groundwater extraction? And a lot of that water extraction happens at the moment during the dry season. So we've been able to isolate a, a, a few key species that we think are most at risk from dry season water extraction. And some of those fish are quite important for recreational fishing. They're certainly important for indigenous communities. So examples of that would be the, the black brim or sooty grunter. They, the juvenile, the, the, the early life stages, like to uh, live in the riffle habitats. They're fast-flowing, shallow waters. And those types of habitats are, are the most sensitive to the reduction in, in water levels. So another key thing would be uh, the barramundi. They need to be able to move up and down the river. If you were to reduce the magnitude of the, of the dry season flow regime, particularly where we were yesterday at Catherine River at Galloping Jacks, there's a series of riffles and cascades, you know, that fast flowing water. 
If you reduce the water levels, it's going to make the water more shallow and it will mean some fish will be quite reluctant to move over that shallow waters because they're more open to predation by birds. So, you know, you can see how human activities could potentially increase the risks to certain key fish species that have, you know, they're culturally important, they're intrinsically valuable, you know, they're an important part of the ecosystem, they're important recreational fishing species. And so we're hoping these sort of key findings the managers will sort of take on board when they make the decisions about how best to allocate water resources for the catchment so to sustain human activities but also sustain the environment as well. Assuming the Minister accepts the, um, the recommendation, the licences will be allocated on the basis of what we call a consumptive pool of 60 gigalitres. But that 60 gigalitres may go down in certain years. If there are indications of, of lower flows um, or lower recharge into the aquifer, then certainly those amounts will, uh, will change. So is that different from the way water licences are done in the, in the Murray-Darling? I very much hope so. <laughs> we want to avoid anything that, that could possibly result in Murray-Darling situations in the Northern Territory. Uh, whilst there are certain rights involved in the water that will be allocated, the controller of water in the Northern Territory has an absolute power to reduce those amounts. So, um, and without that, um, groups like ours would be... Uh, much less willing to get into this sort of process in the way in which we are. That's the safeguard that we have that makes it possible for us to get into it in a way that I think is meaningful for all of the stakeholders, not just us. It is a frost-black night in July 2010. Across the flats between our house and the lake floats a soft mist of frog song. A ghost of frog song compared to the ebullience of 2003, but frog song just the same. Real, almost surreal, after years of quiet. The last fingers of Darling floodwaters, combined with the first good winter rains in seven years, have brought a drink back to our parched lake. And the frogs, these little miracles of nature, have re-emerged from their long sleep in sacks of moisture buried deep beneath stones or at the foot of posts. They are singing once more in a rapture of optimism. We try to share their rapture, but part of us knows this is oh so temporary. Business as usual will return, and with it the sucking out of more water than our poor Murray has to give. But the frogs don't know this. They sing their little hearts out in a chorus of ecstasy, their faith matched only by their lust. I wish I could share their faith. I really, really wish I could. <laughs>